Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to our Sunday morning service. Whether you're sweltering here in the building or sweltering at home or somewhere else and watching us online, um, it's great to, to see you. Uh, if you're a visitor or a newcomer here this morning for the first time, it's uh, great to have you with us. We do look forward to getting to know you. Um, so do please stay for some refreshments after the service. Good time to have a chat then. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are Lord of all, you are sovereign of all. We can come before you now in prayer, knowing also that in your great power you are loving and merciful. Teach us, Lord, to trust you in all things, both large and small. Forgive us for those many times when we continue to trust in our own strength. We continue to pray for Ukraine, all those affected by the war there. Give courage and wisdom and humility to those in positions of leadership in that land. Give comfort to those suffering bereavement and grief and those living in fear every day. And we ask that this evening's service here would be a great blessing to those who come, particularly for our Ukrainian friends. And we pray, Lord, that your light and hope would shine into this difficult situation. Lord, we pray for our missionary partners, David and Binny, in India. Give them strength and wisdom as they serve their church, particularly the families and the young people there. Thank you for their recent chance to get away for a much-needed break, for the rest they enjoyed, for the encouragement also of seeing those who stepped up to take responsibility in the church in their absence. Would they continue to know your love and power in their lives every day? Thank you also, Lord, for the encouraging response to the Giving Day to support the ministry of John and Abby in Nigeria. And Lord, as you bless us in so many ways, give us wisdom in the way we use all our gifts and resources. We ask particularly for this wisdom as we bring our financial offerings to you regularly here. Help us to use our money to serve and glorify you as a church, also as individuals. Help us to acknowledge and remember that all that we have comes from you, Lord. Father, we pray for our leaders here at LCBC. Would they look to you always for wisdom and guidance? Would they continue to trust you in all things? Would they delight in serving you? seek to glorify you in everything. Lord, give them the patience they need, the love that they need as they pass to us and help us to lovingly support them too. We pray for Colin as he has a couple of weeks off coming up that you would refresh him. We pray for Nathan and Lisa this coming week as they lead the young people on their Christians in sport camp. Please use them to encourage those young people and the other leaders there. And we ask, Lord, that many on that camp would turn to you and would dedicate their lives to you. And as we turn to your word this morning, Lord, we thank you that we know that what we hear from you is trustworthy and true. Please help Saab as he explains your word to us to do that clearly and faithfully with confidence knowing the transformational power of your truth. Help us to listen as you speak to us through your word and to be willing to obey even when we find it hard. 
And thank you, Lord, that in a world where we're bombarded with so many opinions and takes and versions of truth, that we can be completely confident in your truthfulness. Lord, we ask all these things that you might be glorified. Amen. Today's Bible reading is being taken from John, uh, chapter 8, verses 30 to 37, and it is on page 1074, if you're reading it in the Church Bible. Even as he spoke, many believed in him. To the Jews who believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold my teaching, you really are, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in a family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you're looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I've seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you've heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, would you then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you're looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your father. We're not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I've not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and a father of lies. Yet, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Anna, thank you so much for, for reading for us. Before we start, let's pray. Uh, The psalmist uh, writes this in Psalm 119. He says, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. My heavenly father, how sweet indeed are your words, uh, sweeter than honey on the tongue. Father, help us uh, this morning. Uh, as we listen to uh, your word opened and folded, uh, help us uh, to taste your goodness, soften our hearts, 
and ready our minds that we might grow in understanding and hate every false way to grow to be more and more like Jesus Christ Amen Uh, Please do keep your Bibles open. It would be a great help to me if you're able to uh, follow along uh, as we work our way through uh, this text. Uh, We're continuing to look at John chapters 8 through 10. And we find that Jesus has been teaching at one of the major Jewish festivals. And last week we saw that Jesus was teaching that he is the light of the world. And as we start our reading this morning with the people who had heard Jesus' teaching in the temple courts... uh, These are people, or some, who were persuaded by what they'd heard. In verse 30 of our reading, John tells us that even as Jesus spoke, many believed in him. Now, I wonder if uh, if we had been there uh, that day, and uh, what might we have thought or expected Jesus to have done uh, at that point? You might expect that the disciples, in their evangelistic zeal, might have gathered around these new believers and then signed them up for a discipleship explained course, uh, given them a handful of books by C.S. Lewis and then rolled them into a small group. The disciples might have thought, well, this is going really well. People are responding. So they gather together those who have professed a belief in Jesus and organize a follow-up meeting with Jesus himself, thinking that one meeting with Jesus, just that one encounter, would cause them to become committed believers. They'd have one meeting and they'd be completely committed to the Jesus movement. You could almost sense, can't you, the excitement that the disciples must have felt at that point. But as we listen to the reading this morning, I hope you realize that uh, and notice that Jesus doesn't rush them to church. Uh, Rather, we're going to see over this week and next week that these fledgling converts are in a matter of two verses go from wanting to follow Jesus to wanting to kill him. All because of what Jesus says and what that means. What Jesus has to say to them and to us today is challenging, but it also contains tremendous hope. Now, I know that some people have been asking for a one-point sermon for some time, so uh, this is your day. A one-point sermon. Uh, The truth will set us free. The truth will set us free. As Jesus teaches uh, in the temple courts, uh, John tells us uh, that some that were there believed in Jesus. And as Jesus speaks to them and lays out what a calling to follow Jesus is like, it causes them to go from followers to wanton murderers. Take a look with me at verse 31. Actually, if you're watching online or if you're here, let's read this out aloud okay so let's read this verse together and and the reason for doing that is i really want this verse to kind of percolate and settle on our hearts and be something that we carry uh, through the week as well so let's read together to the jews who had believed in him jesus said if you hold to my teaching you are really my disciples then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free Jesus has been teaching the people about who he is 
and about what he's come to do. And we looked at that last week, didn't we, where we looked at the darkness, uh, the danger, and the deliverance. And Jesus has been telling them that the focus of God's plan of salvation in all of history is centered and rooted on him. It's centered and rooted on Jesus. And now Jesus is really driving that point home. He's placing himself right at the center of what it means to have a relationship, a living relationship with God. The problem that Jesus diagnoses for the people who profess belief is simply this. They are not free. And we know that's the diagnosis because Jesus says to them at the end of verse 32 that the truth will set them free. Jesus' diagnosis is they are enslaved. And Jesus says he comes to offer freedom. And in our contemporary world, the world around us, a call for freedom is something that everyone is 100% on board with. Right? Mark Liller, who's a modern-day essayist, uh, wrote in 2014 in the New Republic magazine. And he was reflecting on what, if anything, unites Americans. And he noticed that there was one thing that unified and united people of all political, economic, and even religious perspectives. It was this one idea. Give individuals maximum freedom in every aspect of their lives, and all will be well. Give individuals maximum freedom in every aspect of their lives, and all, he asserts, will be well. Uh, Whether it's the freedom from tyranny that we so long for for the people of Ukraine, whether it's liberation from uh, oppression and incarceration, as we see in the Shawshank Redemption, uh, or whether it's freedom to identify however you wish. And that all seems so seductive and simple. It's easy, isn't it, to jump to the conclusion that freedom is about the maximum freedom. Freedom is about throwing off all constraints And having no boundaries at all. That we're all free to achieve whatever we want. Free to do whatever is deemed consensual. And free to be whoever we want. Freedom without boundaries. It is Disney theology. And this thinking, it's it's all around us. It's in the very air that we and our children are breathing in. It's a Disney world where we're all free to be and to do whatever we want. Uh, In the animated film Frozen, Elsa doesn't want to conceal her abilities. She wants to be the person that she sees inside and she desires to be free. She cuts loose, she leaves home, people die in the process and she builds the most spectacular ice castle. She's free, but she's alone. And eventually she comes to realize that you can't have freedom and love. You can't have those two things together. The call that Disney and others make is that freedom is being whoever you want and listening to the voice in your own heart or what people call the truth within 
It's not the complete absence of restrictions that brings freedom, but it's the right restrictions that bring freedom. Because at the heart of freedom, real freedom, biblical freedom, is flourishing. Uh, as a young child, we used to uh, walk by a corner shop on our way to uh, school, uh, backwards and forwards. And I've longed to have pocket money. Well, we didn't have pocket money uh, in our house. Uh, longed to have pocket money so I could go and buy a bar of chocolate every single day. And if we were with uh, our mum as we walked backwards and forwards, I tried to bludgeon her into buying us a bar of chocolate. Wouldn't always uh, yield. Uh, and so I resolved as a six-year-old that when I grew up and I had uh, an income, that by golly, I was going to have a bar of chocolate every single day. I can't wait till I'm older. I'm going to buy chocolate. Here I am. I can now afford to buy a bar of chocolate every single day. Uh, but I don't. Because I know that if I eat all the chocolate that I want, I'll be dead inside five years. Yeah? So I balance my freedom, my desire for chocolate, with a bigger idea of what that freedom and flourishing really is. Freedom isn't about the absence of restrictions. It's about having the right restrictions. So what are the right restrictions? We can know the right restrictions if we follow the maker's instructions, can't we? Uh, if you want to get the best out of your toaster, the maker tells you how to do it in the manual. It will keep the toaster working. If you plug it into the wall, keep it dry, put bread in it, you can toast it. The maker does tell you, do not use the toaster in the bath. It's bad for you and it's bad for the toaster. Even though the toaster has a heating element in it, do not put custard into the toaster to warm it. The maker does know how the toaster works best. A fish is made to flourish if it's constrained and kept in water. Give a fish the freedom from water and it will thrash around on the bank of the river and it will die. The maker knows how the fish flourishes. And so it is for us. We've been created by God. And he has the owner's manual on humanity. And Jesus says that the right restrictions and the way that we are to flourish is found as we abide in his teaching. Jesus, uh, the call from Jesus to them and to us is to hold to Jesus's teaching. Uh, quite literally, the call from Jesus is for his disciples to remain in, uh, to, to abide or to stay inside or, or, or live in his teaching. There's a call to sit under Jesus's teaching and to allow it to infuse and marinate every part of our lives. That Jesus's teaching would be the lens through which we would see all of our lives, all of life. And there's also a call, therefore, to sit uh, under that teaching and to submit to it, to submit to the restrictions that God has placed upon us. Uh, they, those restrictions aren't there to crimp our style. They're not there as busy work. They're not there 
to take joy out of our lives. Those restrictions are there to allow us to have life and have life in all of its fullness. All of its fullness. We've been made to enjoy fellowship with God. And that comes from abiding and remaining in his word. Now that's why in verses 31 and 32, Jesus tells us that his true disciples will hold to his teaching. And by holding to Jesus' teaching, they'll know the truth, which will set them free. They need to be set free because in verse 34, Jesus says they are enslaved. So how is it that Jesus can say they are sins, they are slaves to sin? Now, there's an obvious way, isn't there? Um, that we can think about sin and enslavement, and there are subtle ways to think about enslavement. And when we think about being uh, enslaved to sin, we tend to think of people with really, or people who've had or do have really obvious addictions, such as drink or gambling uh, or drugs. And we can understand in our own minds, can't we, uh, how such addictions can destroy the lives of people and make them slave to the, the things that they're addicted to. The addictions rule over them. At the start, the thrill that's offered by drink, by drugs, by pornography, by whatever it is, is large. But very quickly, the high that those substances or experiences give gets smaller and smaller. So the amount that you need to achieve that same high grows and grows. The effect gets smaller and the demand for the substance grows. To start with, you control the drink or the drugs, but soon they control you as they take over your life. They demand everything. You are enslaved. Now, Russell Brand has had his uh, fair share of addictions. He's been very public about that. Uh, and he saw the in, how the enslaving power, this is really interesting, he saw how the enslaving power of the less obvious things work. He explains that when we look for material things to, um, to fulfill us, to give us a real sense of meaning and purpose and identity, he says that no matter what we choose, it will disappoint and Brand says, you know, it's easy to see how drink and drugs can never really satisfy. It's obvious that those things are destructive and that those things enslave us. But Brand observes, and I think he's right, to say that we can be enslaved when we take any good thing and we raise it to be an ultimate thing. If we take any good thing, a foreign holiday, a successful career, a happy family, a new car or a new house... And we make those things ultimate things where we choose to live for those things alone. Those are the places where we start to tap real meaning in our lives. And Brand says it takes a little bit longer to realize that those things, those ultimate things, are just hollowing us out. They are just hollowing us out, making us feel empty and ultimately alone. They enslave in a prison where the walls are made of velvet. Whatever we live for, if it isn't Jesus, it will enslave you. 
before we move on, though, I think it's just worth uh, thinking for a moment about how these new believers respond to Jesus in verses 33, 39 and 41. So they say they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we should be set free? In verse 39, Abraham is our father, they answered. And in 41, again, they point, the only father we have is God himself. There's a defensiveness, isn't there, in the way that they respond to Jesus. There's a desire to rebut, to deny, and to reject what Jesus says. And as we look at these verses, I think there are a couple of learning points for us. But there's also a warning embedded in here. Now, firstly, did you notice that they're taking their questions to Jesus? And that's a good thing for us to do. Uh, The Christian faith is based upon historical truths, real events, real people, real places. Christianity is not a blind faith, something, a leap in the dark. It's based upon historical evidence. And as pastors, we really do encourage you to wrestle with your faith so that you might grow in your love and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. So as a learning point this morning, do you take the truths revealed in scripture and do you ask, how does this apply to my life? Or with parts of scripture you don't understand, do you simply just skate over them, skip over them? And does that happen a lot? I mean, there will always be parts of scripture that we can't plumb the depths of. But do you never question? Do you never wrestle? Uh, And a warning. There is an opposite error from never questioning. It's to come to scripture with an unteachable heart. It's to have your own views so firmly set that when scripture teaches something that doesn't fit in with how you see the world, that you just reject it outright. You pick and choose bits of the Bible that you approve of and you disregard the bits that you think are old-fashioned or, well, no longer culturally relevant. Would people who know you, would they say of you that you're teachable? Would they say that to you? Thomas Jefferson, one of the founding fathers of the United States, he was the third president of the USA, uh, couldn't see how miracles were possible. He just could not accept that miracles actually happened. And he produced something called the Jefferson Bible. Here it is, the Jefferson Bible. He took the four Gospels and he cut out any miracles to distill what he thought were the most important thing. The most important thing he thought were the ethics and the words of Jesus. The ethics of Jesus. That there was, in his Bible, there's no miraculous birth. And his Bible ends with death. There is no resurrection. There is no hope. 
by cutting out the bits that he intellectually or culturally could not ascribe to, he ended up gutting the gospel of all of its power. And I wonder where in our hearts do we approach scripture like that, cut out the bits that we don't like. Uh, Maybe not physically, uh, but certainly in terms of the calling that God makes on us of how we should live our lives. Perhaps we don't like the teaching on sexual ethics, on financial giving, on headship in the home or in the church, or forgiving others, or, or, or wherever it might be. So we just cut those bits out. I wonder what that is for you. Where are you prone to cut those bits out? Or are you prepared to wrestle with those bits? Are you willing to submit to be obedient to God even if you don't feel like you should? Now, there is clearly a fine balance right to be stuck. It's easy to fall into a ditch on either side of that path, either to accept everything without questioning or questioning everything and accepting nothing. And over time, you'll know that you're avoiding those errors as you allow more and more the Bible to explain itself, Old Testament and New Testament. And you'll see more clearly God's redemptive plan through history in all of scripture. The revelation of how a holy God reconciles to himself an unholy people, of how he pours out his spirit that they might be conformed to the likeness of his own son. Seeing those things more clearly will help us not make those opposite errors. And at the end of the service, one of the things I'd like you to do uh, is to discuss a question. And the question is this. Uh, Jesus says that if we hold on to his teaching, we are really his disciples. So the question is, what stops Christians from holding on to Jesus's teaching? There'll be a slide with that question at the end. Do chat with those around you about that. Now, we've seen that the exchange between Jesus and the Jews has parenthood firmly in view, doesn't it? Uh, They first claim that they can trace their ancestry to Abraham and then to God himself. Uh, But Jesus' assessment is that they're not members. They are not members of the family of God. They think they are, but Jesus says that they're not because the way that they live reveals that. The way that they respond to Jesus tells them that they are not God's children. The new believers, like all the people of Israel at that time, thought that you were made right with God if you obeyed the law. They thought that if you obeyed the rules, then that made you part of the family of God. If that's what we think, if we think if I obey, and because of that obedience, I'm a member of God's family then you don't have a father-child relationship with God. If you think obedience alone is the way in to God's family, then you're not in. Let me explain. I Take a look at this slide. Uh, This is a diagnostic, okay? So it's just a diagnostic uh, to see how we relate to God, okay? Uh, The Jews in our passage relate to God as an employee 
yeah, relates to an employer, his boss or her boss. Uh, they believe that their favor with God is a function of their obedience. Uh, so they relate to God as an employee would relate to an employer. Uh, they have to apply for the role. They bring before God all the good things that they've done, uh, their resume, if you like, and hope that God will take them on. Uh, these are people who say that they want to clean up their life and then present themselves before God. Uh, once again, they know that if uh, their performance is the thing that got them in, they know also that their performance will be the thing that determines how long they stay in. They'll be constantly checking the rules, focused on the details, unable to see the wood for the trees. They'll be stressing about all the things that they haven't done, and they'll be boasting about all the things that they have. They'll think it's all about keeping the rules and keeping them well. Now, as an employee, you have certain hours that you work. Uh, you punch in, you punch out. Uh, that means that if you have problems, you absolutely can't take them to your boss. What if he thinks less of you? And if you have those questions arise outside of office hours, what do you do? You can't take your problems to your boss. And the only reason that the employee is there is because of what he can get out of the employer, out of his boss. His pay, his benefits, his status, his perks. It's all about the employee. It's not about the boss. And if things go really badly in your life, the employee, well, it gets fired. Religious people are never certain of their salvation. They know in their hearts they've made a mess of things and they are never sure whether they're acceptable to God. People who are only religious, they're only religious, they are enslaved by the law. And that's the problem with these people that Jesus is speaking to. They're enslaved by the rules. No matter what they do, and if you're like this this morning and it's true for you, the law will always tell you that you haven't done enough or it will always remind you of your failures. And that's haunting. But to be in the family, to be a child of God, is completely different. The role of a child isn't a role you apply for. You didn't present your parents with a resume and then ask yourself to be born into that family. It just happens to you. Once you're a child, you're always a child. You may be an errant child, but you are always a child. Your status never changes. You have access to the Father at all times. Now think about that for a moment. Who can stroll into your bedroom at two o'clock in the morning and make demands of you? Our children, when they were three, uh, they could bowl into our room and they, at two o'clock in the morning, and demand water. They could make any demand they wanted, and they knew that we would respond. And so it is with us. As dearly loved children of God, we can come, we can break into the throne room of God and present our petitions, our prayers to Him. We have access at all times. And when things go wrong, 
as they always will, as things go badly, you are never fired. You are never fired as a child. In fact, the reverse happens. You know, parents, you know that as your, if your children uh, take paths which are not helpful or conducive, you don't distance yourself from them, but love chases after the child. You pour yourself in to that child. Love moves in and follows the child. And that's what it means to be a child of God. For the employee, it's all about the, what the employee does. It's all performance and it's enslaving. For the child, it's all about who you are. It's liberating. And there's real freedom inside that. So when you look at your relationship with God, do you see a father-child relationship? Or is your walk more like a boss-employee relationship? So how do we move from slavery to freedom? Jesus says we need the truth. Because the truth will set us free. As we've already said, being a child of God isn't a position that we apply for and hope that somehow God will think that we're good enough. The truth is, it's not our record that counts. It's Christ's. And that truth is two-edged. And there's good news in both edges. The truth, the first part of that is that we are more sinful. We are more sinful than we dared imagine. That nothing less than the death of the Son of God could ever pay the price of our rebellion. But, but, at the very same time, we are more loved than we ever dare hope for. Because the Son of God willingly came, willingly came for me and for you. He came to pay the price. And that humbles us into the dirt because there's nothing in us to commend ourselves to God. But it affirms us to the skies because the one who is ultimately praiseworthy, the God of the universe, the one who sits on the throne, loves you, loves me like that. He wants us. And with that truth in our hearts, we go through the world knowing that we are loved by the one who is truly praiseworthy. We are loved by the one person who will never let us down, never abandon us, will never forsake us. And if we will just allow that truth of how much we are loved to settle into the very core of our being... To know that we have been rescued and loved. If we allow that to go right to the very heart of who we are, then you will have the power, the power of God to lift you out from underneath whatever is enslaving you. And maybe it isn't something as obvious as class A drugs or uncontrolled alcoholism. But maybe it's a deep and profound sense of discontentment. That nothing pleases you. Nothing satisfies you. You're deeply sceptical, bitter and cynical about everything. 
or, or it's a desire to control everything. And when small things don't go the way you want, it just explodes in uncontrollable anger. Whatever it is, allowing the truth of how much God has done to rescue you, to move you from death to life, that's the power that God gives you to transform your lives, to break the chains of slavery and to set us free. The truth will set us free. Tom Tarrant uh, had been at one time one of the most uh, wanted terrorists in the United States and he was a former Klansman. Uh, In his own words, uh, he was consumed by hatred of non-white Americans. His hatred enslaved him. It drove him to commit many ugly atrocities. When he was finally arrested, he was shot many times and presumed dead. He survived and he went into prison, escaped the first time, was recaptured, went back into prison. And there he started to read the Bible. He engaged with the truth and he met with Jesus in a really powerful way. He had a life-changing encounter with Jesus. And now he works as an advocate for racial reconciliation. From clansman to racial reconciliation. That's the power of God at work in his heart. And that's the same power that can be at work in our hearts if we would just let the truth set us free. The truth set Thomas Tarrant free. Do you know that truth for yourself? Know this. The truth of Jesus' word is powerful enough to set you free from whatever binds you. And in our next two songs, why don't you use those songs, the words of those songs, to bring whatever it is that's enslaving you before the Lord and ask him, pray to him, set me free, set me free. Break in to the throne room. Go to our Father and ask him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much that your word is truth. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your rescue. Thank you that because of that we can trust you. So Father, I pray that whatever it is that is enslaving us, Help us, give us the courage to bring that before you and trust that you will be mighty at work in our hearts, setting us free, that we might flourish in love and enjoy you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now that does bring us uh, to the end of our service uh, this morning. As you've journeyed through the service this morning, if the Lord has spoken to you, Um, If he's touched your heart, if he's laid something on your heart, then can I urge you, please, please, to pray uh, with someone. Pray with the person uh, that you came along with, but please do not leave here uh, without praying, without breaking in to the throne room, to the one who longs to hear from his children. At the start of John's Gospel, uh, John writes this in chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, 
he gave the right to become children of God. Amen.